All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 19 of the Movement is Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Carr, and I'm joined today by my friend, Eric Chesson. Eric, uh, thank you for joining us here. My esteemed pleasure. And you got my last name right, so we're doing good. Oh, nailed it. We're off to a good start. <laughs> Sometimes we get cheese in. It's like two S's, not two E's, non-dairy. <laughs> well, um, you know, Eric uh, founded and started an organization called Autism Fitness, and I wanted to, you know, take an uh, opportunity to sit and talk with him today. You know, we've kind of crossed paths a few times in the fitness industry, and I've kind of got to see a little bit of what he does um, and, and he does some amazing things. And I think that he could really, you know, shed some light on, you know, working with his specific population and kind of talk about some broader concepts in fitness as well. And, you know, I figured, why don't we start, you know, with this conversation with you just kind of introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about your story into the fitness space and, and we can take it from there. Yeah, thank you. So I started out if you, like the the evolution uh, of, of my journey. I started out um, like like many kids growing up on Long Island. I played Little League Baseball and I, I was really active, um, you know, playing around the neighborhood. We grew up in in an apartment complex and we would literally go through a hole in the fence to get down to what we refer to as the swamp which was a literal swamp. It was the marshlands right before the uh, the train tracks for the Long Island Railroad. You'll hear my Long Island accent come out as I get more excited. Yeah. <laughs> um, we went, you know, crossing the train tracks, many different ways, shapes, and forms in which we should have been injured or maimed or, or potentially killed during our youth. Uh, you know, come home scraped up and, and still bleeding for dinner, that kind of thing. But you know, as as I got older and, you know, into middle school and then high school, I wasn't, you know, I, I definitely was not making the cutoff for the baseball team and didn't have any other physical activity to fall back on because, you know, at 13 and 14, you're not really playing outside that much anymore. So I became, you know, sedentary and, and started, you know, gaining weight. And then like many in the fitness industry, it just became that prompt to, you know, I want to change something about my lifestyle. I want to get better. I want to feel better. I want to look better. So in high school, I walked into our dilapidated weight room one day, had zero idea what I was doing, but I think I jumped onto the pec deck on the universal machine and just started, if you want to call it training, which I, I wouldn't uh, subscribe that term to it, but started moving and then um, started doing more you know, basic calisthenic stuff at, at home and then discovered martial arts and got into Jeet Kune Do and and kickboxing and the later Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But because of that lifestyle change and just falling in love with, with lifting um, in general, I, uh, I, I made that leap to it being a lifestyle and then eventually somewhat of a, a career path in, in kind of a winding way. Uh, I went to undergraduate um, for criminal justice and graduated with a degree in forensic psychology initially thinking that I wanted to do sports psychology. I wanted to do something with fitness or, or movement and then something um, with psychology because I, I absolutely love the psychological and emotional aspect of it. And then and in between I was doing, I was always lifting, but then I was doing jujitsu. I competed in, in Olympic lifting for a very short period of time, um, competed in powerlifting uh, for, for a short period of time. And now after a 19-year hiatus, I'm back doing jujitsu 
again. But what's cool about it also is because of all the, the, between the strength training and the conditioning, I've gone back 19, 20 years to jujitsu and I, I still have the same stamina, which is cool. It's cool when you're outlasting like 20 years. Yeah, and, and I mean, I'll tell you, jujitsu is no joke from a conditioning yeah. standpoint. We have uh, yeah. a lot of the guys that work with us uh, actively train jujitsu. They roll um, at a uh, dojo down the street, and I'll tell you, these guys they they'll all tell you there's no time that they're more physically exhausted uh, than after a hard roll. Like anything you do in the weight room or in the gym, uh, when you yeah. compare it to having to actually go live with someone, uh, seems pretty easy. <laughs> Well, yeah, because when you have, you know, when you have a heavy set of rows, you can always put the bar, the dumbbells down. Yeah. When you have someone who is actively trying to choke you to unconsciousness, you can't put them down. <laughs> yeah. can, There's no stopping the set. Tap, but you can tap, but, you know, you, you don't want to. So there's more of a, I think, visceral fight flight reaction that's going on in that particular circumstance and that's what makes it exciting you just keep pushing because there's there's that component to it where you want to stop but at the same time you also don't want to stop and and there's a point that kicks in where you say i can't right now because otherwise something not too good is going to happen <laughs> and so your journey um you know you know not going necessarily to your formal education for spe specifically something like you know, fitness yeah. or strength and conditioning, but something that's based yeah. on psychology. I mean, there's probably yeah. still a lot of things you can draw on and you still draw on your career based on the things you got in your formal education, especially with a psychology background, I would imagine. A hundred percent. And the only reason why I have autism fitness today and, and why it, why it, it's been so successful um, it is because I have an interdisciplinary background. So the reason I got into autism fitness, I was working as a personal trainer when I was going to graduate school. Um, and initially I was going to graduate school for behavioral psychology. And I had a classmate who said, hey, I know you're a personal trainer and you're in this behavioral psychology program. Would you be interested in working in this program that I run for teens on the autism spectrum? Because we've never had a dedicated fitness program. So that's where it came wow. in. So had it just been a fitness background or had it just been an applied behavior analysis background, it wouldn't have the the answers and the robust nature and the system that I've been able to develop. So I, I credit to the fact that I have this multidisciplinary background where I can speak multiple technical languages. Like I can talk to a behavior therapist in their terminology and talk to an exercise scientist or a trainer in their terminology and kind of bridge the gap there. And so as you kind of came into this opportunity where they said, hey, we're looking to put together a fitness program, what were the things that you learned or what the challenges you faced right off the bat, you know, working with, you know, like a neurodivergent population with autistic population? What were the things that when you went into it, I mean, you had never done that before, I take it. And then you had to kind of yeah. build the program from the ground up. Yeah, that, that's a great question. The first and foremost and absolute most critical thing to, to know is that you could have the greatest program on paper. And this, you, you know, you had mentioned early on some things that other people can take away, even if they're not working with a neurodivergent population, is that your program on paper has to apply to a real three-dimensional living, breathing person in front of you. And, and this population is, is no different. So 
rather than just saying, oh, well, these are the exercises that we need to use, which, which is true, you don't necessarily have the luxury of a motivated individual um, a, a lot of the time. And oftentimes there are competing or challenging behaviors, a lot to do with um, anxiety and, and getting overwhelmed or aversion to certain tasks or anything new. And, and really the gateway to having success in, in a fitness or, or any capacity uh, programming and support with the autism or, or neurodiverse population is understanding that you have a human being who, who still has you know needs and, and, and functional capabilities. And at the same time, understanding that you're not necessarily going to get this immediate happy, awesome, let's have a party type of situation just because you have something good to offer. Yeah. You have to take the the steps to appreciate and respect that person and understand where they are right now. I've had some assessment sessions that I run where we get one thing done, yeah. like one exercise done. So in that case, my main, my my priority is not, okay, let's, you know, shoehorn in or let's try to get in as many exercises as possible because i need this individual to to move well quickly it's let's reduce anxiety and build a rapport and make sure that the expectations are understood so that two weeks or three weeks or four weeks from now we can get two things done yeah. or three things done so it's more of a long-term strategy yeah and, and and that's definitely like you said a concept that can probably be applied across anybody in any population that you work with. Um, obviously, possibly a uh, more extreme example in in your example. But in when you find yourself in those cases, you say, hey, how can I build trust with this person and reduce anxiety? What are the first steps that you take to try to get them to maybe want to exercise? Like you said, you're not necessarily working with someone, a yeah. group of people who are like really want to exercise to begin with, although yeah. it's good for them. Yeah. Uh, the first is always give choice. So even uh, so when we're starting, when I'm running a pack profile assessment session with an athlete, they come in, we, you know, we, I, I meet them and then it's, okay, do you want to do hurdle steps first? Or do you want to do cone touches first? Which one of these do you want to do first? So the framing of it is not, you have to do this or, or immediately, okay, do this. It's which one do you want to do? Because you think about the lives of a lot of individuals, particularly, you know, adolescents and, and teens who, who I work with primarily, how many opportunities for choice do they have in the, in the course of their daily life? And here's me all of a sudden having them do all of these new things, move in ways that they're not either comfortable or familiar moving in, you know, new environment. What can I do to facilitate the best possible experience for them? Well, number one, ask them which one, even if they're not familiar with the exercise, what do you want to do first? Do you want to use this band first? Or do you want to touch these cones first? So that's first. You always want to give choice. Yeah, by giving them the option and giving them choice, they, it gives them a sense of control or gives them a sense of that they are have some autonomy over the situation. Um, whereas, like you 100%. said, maybe in their daily and, life, they don't have that anywhere else. Yeah, and, and it eliminates the prospect of using have to. Have to sucks. Yeah. Like no one wants to be told in any situation. And, and this, another thing that's, you know, conducive or, or relevant to training general or, or athletic populations, you're never going to get the best outcome when you start something with have mm -hmm. to. 
if you if you think about your neurotypical clients um, or athletes, and you say, okay, you have to do this. Oh, great, that's going to be really motivating for them. Exactly, and and in that you mentioned the pack profile that you developed. If you want to, yes. you know, take some time to kind of explain what that is and, and kind of how you you put that together in the first place. I was actually thinking, Kevin, of keeping it as a mysterious acronym. <laughs> people just people are going to be googling it. If that's cool, yeah. I'm just going to leave it there, and people go like, "What? Okay." Um, so the pack profile is the methodology that I developed. Um, I, I, I'd say about ten years, twelve years in, into working with the population to teach other people, because what I recognized was, again, I can't just give, "Oh, here are the top eight or ten, you know, that the standard eight or ten top exercises for you know fill in the blank population," because of the motivational and, and oftentimes the, the behavioral aspects and the cognitive aspects too. So PAC is physical, adaptive, and cognitive. Physical is the exercises and the progressions and modifications and the overall programming. Adaptive is the uh, behavioral, the motivation, uh, what else is going on for that athlete in terms of their ability to self-regulate or to engage in the activity to a meaningful degree. And then cognitive is broken into the uh, neurological, which is language and memory, and then the neuromuscular, which is kinesthetic. So when the the reason I I use all three of those is if you can target the correct physical approach, like the exercise as it needs to be, the motivation as it needs to be, and, and positive behavior support, and then the coaching and cueing as it needs to be, You've satisfied each one of those compartments. If something is off, something's not working, the movement doesn't look quite right, the athlete isn't sufficiently motivated, we can target what one or two or three of the three is out of balance, and then it's all contingency-based. So we make a decision based on what we're seeing. If you understand what you're seeing, then you can make an intelligent coaching decision about what to do. And as like, if I was just a normal coach coming in and I was going to begin, you know, working with um, a neurodivergent population, where are the things, places that you see these coaches struggle initially, right? They take their typical approach. They're working with, you know, their average client and then they get referred. Someone come with them. Where do you see that they hit their first, you know, road bump or their, their first places that they struggle as a coach to be able to implement a program? Man, you have some really good questions. Um, I, I would say it's overcoaching is the number one thing. Trying to describe an exercise or using too much language or saying, okay, uh, you're going to do a bear walk. So first, you know, put your hands and knees on the ground and now lift your knees up and remember to look forward. And it's like overcoaching is the death knell of good performance, especially with this population because you're overwhelming them with verbal information that they may not be able to process. So it what we want to do is a process called label, demonstrate, do, and cue. Label the exercise, demonstrate it, and then have them go and just coach it from, from that standpoint. Rather than as soon as you get anybody in front of you and you are explaining movement, you are losing time, patience, and performance. Oh my God, it's so true. And uh, I mean, if, again, another concept that kind of extends across all coaching uh, situations, but we always say when we're in the gym, we're working with kids. This, if you once you start talking, 
they stop listening. And so as soon as you can demonstrate to them what you want something to look like and then put them into the situation so they can experience it, then you have an opportunity to coach and make changes and, and do what you need to do. But for most people, until they're in that movement, in that exercise doing it, it's going to be very hard for them to conceptualize what it is that you're asking them to do. Oh, totally. Uh, especially with kids. As soon as you have a bottleneck, you, you are inviting problems. Yeah. And, and you're working with uh, people across all ages as well. So um, not just children, adults. Yeah. Um, and so one thing I think uh, people forget is that, you know, no matter, you know, kind of who you are, physical activity becomes an important part of everybody's life from just general health and preparedness. Yeah. But um, are there more challenges that you find working with an adult uh, person in the autistic population versus working with kids? How does that differ uh, with your approach based on how you might coach or communicate? Yeah. I see the same movement deficits and the same um, movement compensations, the same strength deficits. It's just that unfortunately with teens and adults, you see it more uh, you mm -hmm. see more of it because they've had a longer time of either movement dysfunction or a sedentary mm -hmm. lifestyle too there aren't too many athletes who i work with on the autism spectrum who come to me after having worked with another trainer for 10 years five years or 10 years like they come to me and they're 23 24 25 and the parents say, yeah, we've noticed they've been pretty inactive for the last, you know, X amount of years, where in reality, they never had any structured, uh, any structured mm -hmm. program. So that that's the biggest thing that I see. It's just more of the same and a longer timeline of, of the same, too. So there's a greater amount of movement and motor and, and strength dysfunction because it's been allowed to to persist for. Yeah, and I could long. imagine with your population specifically, you know, physical activity or exercise probably lots of times has not been prioritized for them. Like it might be um, any typical person and yeah. access to coaches or people to be able to deliver training uh, is probably fairly low. I would imagine that would be a big barrier um, for a lot of individuals. Yeah, completely. It's it's that dual problem of um, of access, number one, and mm -hmm. also initiative, you know, because for so many of these individuals, particularly those who have more behavioral and cognitive challenges, the parents are going to be the advocates. The parents are going to be the ones who, you know, who are pushing forward um, for programming or finding programming. So you, you have these two steps. You, you need to have you know, the, the parents who are motivated to seek this out and then you need to have the right situation, the right environment, the right training, um, the right coaching. So you have those two main uh, obstacles, which is you know, something something that I, I'm working very hard on. on yeah. And so in doing that, uh, do you spend some time, you know, I mean, obviously you said like the parents are the advocates in a lot of cases. Um, are you often speaking with parents, yeah. speaking with uh, medical health professionals, people, and trying to implore the importance of, yeah. hey, physical activity is important for everybody. We just might have to deliver it this way. We need to find people who are qualified to deliver it um, because they need this as well. Absolutely. You know, from an, from an educational standpoint, yes. Uh, by the time a parent 
finds me or finds, you know, one of our autism fitness certified pros, they're already looking for it. Like nobody yeah. finds me by accident. Yeah, exactly. I would imagine. Yeah. They, 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 they found you and then they're, they're seeking you out. And so yeah. what, when you start working with these individuals over a period of time, what do you look for as far as goals or progress? Um, like what things are you looking at over the course of, you know, months, years, what, what are your milestones? What yeah. are the things that you're looking at to yep. gauge progress? Because again, it probably might not be the same as uh, you working with yeah. the typical population. Yeah, well, from a physical perspective, what I'm looking for is motor control through a, a full range of motion. So if you take a squat or a band row or you know, a farmer's walk, uh, any, you know, any of the staple movements, uh, um, that I'm using to to facilitate you know gross motor development strength and strength endurance. I want control through the full range of motion, especially in the eccentric performance, because I have a lot of athletes who, if I instruct them or I coach them to squat, they're just going to kind of plop yeah. down on a box. So being able to control themselves through the full range of motion is really important because otherwise you're really not going to get the appropriate amount of time under tension or contraction to actually have a training effect. So it's not just about the exercise. It's about how do we coach the exercise in a way where the athlete is performing it to a point where there's going to be some net benefit mm -hmm. to it. Right. Especially if we see movement compensation, because if we see, you know, internal hip rotation, a lot of knee valgus in a squat, we can't, I mean, yeah. you can, but it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to just say, okay, well, this is how they do it. Yeah. So they're just going to keep doing it. It's like, no, that's not what we're looking for. So my goals and the milestones are, Hey, can we get to the point where this athlete is able to control this movement pattern? Even if we're reducing range of motion on something like a squat or, you know, if I'm supporting them physically through full range of motion on like a band row or, uh, supporting their grip on, on a farmer's walk or an overhead press, at what point can I fade myself back and they have more mastery over, over this movement pattern? Because we see a lot of kind of short, jerky movements in this population, and a lot of that comes back to um, the, the governance of that motor planning, which goes back into the you know, neurological functioning and, and motor neuron firing and stuff. And it's and these are, are skills that can be developed, but they take a really long time because you're working, you know, you're not working from the ground level. Oftentimes yeah. you're working from the basement, you're working from a deficit. And it's not bad, it's not bad and it's not something to be, you know, like vilified. It's just this is where it's at right now and this is what we need to do in order to clear up this deficit so that we can move forward. So the milestones from a physical perspective are, you know, cleaning up some movement deficits, developing baseline strength so that we can do more. Um, and then from an adaptive perspective, you know, for a lot of athletes, it's just being comfortable in the environment, being comfortable under a higher demand situation where, yeah, the expectation is you're going to do these three or four exercises and then take a break. And then from a cognitive perspective, it varies uh, a lot between athletes, but for some, it might be more language development around that particular exercise or requesting things. You know, like an athlete I had today, differentiating between, do you need a break to use the bathroom or do you need a break <laughs> because you need a break? Um, you know, so those, those type of things, and that's cool because we can build in 
other skills like language opportunities. We can, um, you know, build, build in, uh, in some cases, socialization opportunities. Of course, you know, fitness and, and, and healthy movement patterns are going to be the, you know, the, the, over the the overarching theme and the and the goal, but there are other there are other components of those individual lives that we can. Do yeah, and you really just underscore the importance of developing communication skills as a coach. Um, I know that's uh, something that's been gotten more yeah. popular in the fitness space in the last few years. People learning how to listen, how to ask better questions, how to communicate and clarify better, um, and obviously becomes increasingly important um, with a population where communication might be troublesome. And so in what ways have you found it helpful for coaches to improve their communication, to be able to, you know, meet their client, meet that athlete where they're at? Yeah, it, it's a balance of, so you always want to approach the athlete with respect, which means using age appropriate language and balancing that out with cognitively mm -hmm. appropriate language. And an example of that is, so I may have a three exercise circuit for an athlete and say, all right, Tyler, first you've got, uh, first you've got hurdle steps and then cone touches and then an overhead band walk, which is fine. And, and from a language perspective, it's conveying something very, very clear and, and sequential. However, with many individuals on the autism spectrum, if I give them a three-step direction verbally, it's going to be confusing. And they may just, oftentimes, <laughs> they'll just do yeah. the last thing that I told them to do. So they'll go grab the band, do the overhead band walk, because the, the first two directions kind of disappear into the ether. And that's just, again, that's back to neurological functioning. I'm not going to do anything about that now, if ever. That's just what it is right now. So I may break my my instruction up into three steps. They do, I say, all right, Tyler, do the hurdle steps. They do the hurdle steps. Great. Now you have cone touches. They do the cone touches and then they do the overhead band walk. And from a physiological yeah. perspective, it doesn't matter, um, you know, what, when I gave them the directions, just that they were able to, to follow them. So that's something from, you know, the, the coaching mindset of how and when am I delivering specific information such that it's going to be conducive to this athlete, number one, understanding what I'm talking about, and two, being able to... Yeah, I would imagine as a coach, when you first start working, maybe with the autistic population, there's probably a learning curve for you as a coach to understand, this is how I can communicate most efficiently um, for them and for myself yeah. for the session, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think that, you know, going into it and understanding, okay, looking at what you did, evaluating, say, okay, that probably didn't work the way I needed it to. Um, let me try doing it that way. And, and trying to figure out for each individual, I would imagine could be very different. How, how can I deliver yeah. this coaching uh, as effectively as possible? Oh, totally. I have nonverbal athletes who after a while I figure out, oh, they understand every damn word I'm saying. Mm -hmm. They may not you know, have the expressive language but i'll tell them to do something they'll wait to do it it'll they'll wander off it'll be 35 40 seconds yep. later they'll yep. come back. <laughs> you got oh, it oh, okay well they're <laughs> they they just didn't feel like it uh you know immediately but they they knew what um, I and at the start you talked about you know giving choice and how that could you know help lend itself to motivation and uh yeah. confidence um in participating in fitness 
what other things might you do or techniques yeah. might you use to help with motivation? Like you said, they might not come in necessarily intrinsically motivated to exercise, but you can develop that. What yeah. ways um, have you found helpful? Behavior specific praise is a big one. And this is another one that I think translates and this is like a gold, maybe even a platinum nugget for, for coaches. When you just say great job, uh, if, as an example, I could be turned around here. <laughs> those of you listening and not watching, I just turned around and I wasn't looking at the camera for effect. Or I could say, Kevin, I'm loving this interview. You're asking me really poignant, great questions. I can tell that you're an active listener and it's really an enjoyable experience. And if you were to ask anybody which one of those is a more effective reinforcer, uh, you know, and, and motivator. Would you argue? Yeah, of it's course. Probably the second one, because all I did was I noticed, and I I referenced the fact that that you were doing things that were particular, and that that really moved things forward in a positive way. So rather than say, "Great job, great job, you're awesome, that's fantastic," it's Great hurdle step. Nice getting your knee up. Awesome push throw. Great looking at me. Because, and this is something that is not uh, relegated to the autism or neurodiverse population. You can do this with any athlete. And what you will likely see is an increase in that particular performance. Because rather than approach it from don't do that, don't do that, no, do it this way. The worst thing we could ever say is do it this way instead, rather than try this. Try this as an invitation, and it also focuses on what someone's doing correctly, because at any one given time, particularly with all of the physiological uh, issues that any of my athletes have, I could pick out five or, th uh, five or six different things that I would want to change immediately about squat pattern or a press or a row. We're not going to get to them immediately. So I don't want to call them out for the athlete who may very well mm -hmm. get confused about it anyway. Rather, I'll say, oh, great, keeping your shoulders down on that band row. Because then I have a mm -hmm. new road to incentivizing. That's, That's really big. Yeah, telling right. someone specifically what you liked that they did, what they did well. Um, mm -hmm. Because that lights up, like you said, it, it puts a bigger light on for them. But that, oh, I did this well, as opposed to just giving them a general yeah. good job. You want them to understand clearly what it is that you liked about that. And then that serves almost as a motivator, whether they know it or not, uh, when they go back to do it again. Yeah. Well, even, even the, you know, the prosody and the, and the tone of your yeah. voice, you know, great job, great job, great job. Like, <laughs> nobody cares about that, but the, the inflection and the way that you say it, like, even if the athlete doesn't inherently understand every word that I am saying, it's like, Oh, that was an awesome squat. You had your knees in place. That looked great. They may not necessarily, you know, they will likely never care as, as will many neurotypical individuals yeah. never care <laughs> exactly. about their knee position in their lifetime. You are not going to pay them to care about their knee positioning, but they care that they are doing something well. That they, that they are and, confident. Yeah, it's, that's, you hit it perfectly. Um, 
I know I, I work in a private setting. Uh, a lot of people listening to this probably work in a private setting, but there's probably a lot mm -hmm. of uh, practitioners, whether they're physical therapists, physical phys ed teachers, occupational therapists, people working in a public sector in schools yep. with uh, people who may be uh, in the yep. autistic population. What advice or support could you give to them mm -hmm. for them to be more successful? Because it can often be hard, I think, in their setting. Um, where there's not someone coming to you privately, yep. like you said, people, when they find you, they actively were seeking you out, um, for help. Whereas there's often a, probably a large yep. proportion of the population is just in the public sector. And you have p people who, again, motivation might sure. not always be there. If it's not someone who's seeking you out privately, um, how can those people, you know, seek to do the best job mm -hmm. that they can in their setting? Hey, there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a, a lot of the occupational and um, professionals that contact me, the number one thing when I ask them, what are you looking for? What do you, what do you want to get? You know, at a mm -hmm. certification program is they want a system. They want things that are systematized. And oftentimes... You know, the exercise, everything's important. The exercises are important. It's not to say, oh, just do whatever, whatever exercises. No, that's not a, a sufficient program at all, ever. A lot of it is around around motivation. So the two terms that I hear come up the most when people see me out or they're looking for information or, or advice is either, you know, low motivation of their students or, or of their athletes or their clients, or I need a system. Because I don't know where to, you know, where, where do I start? Like, what is the most important thing? What do I start with? So at a baseline, as I mentioned before, you know, start with choice, but then choice of what? So you get these layers of, okay, choice and, and motivation. Great. Let, let's build that. Then what mm -hmm. do we actually, what are we doing? So then you get into programming. So I, I like a three-phase session. So warm-up and mobility, hour, if it makes sense. And focusing the majority of our time on, on strength and, and strength endurance. So doing kind of, if I were to meet head it, I would say kind of doing a, mm -hmm. a quasi bodybuilder strongman session. You know, we're going to squat, yeah. press, pull, and then carry heavy stuff. Uh, you know, are the main ingredients of, of this training skill that, that we're putting together. But I, I would say that, um, you know, the, the main pointers are you have to meet the athlete where they are which is a, it's a broad statement. What that means are you have to be able to identify what's going on physically, what's going on behaviorally, motivationally, and how do you communicate effectively with this athlete? Otherwise, nothing, if yeah, not Yeah, and with, that's a, Brendan and I had a whole episode on this podcast about the phrase meet the client where they're at because it's kind of the one of those general things you hear people say. Yeah. But, I mean, like you said, you have to – yeah, you have to bring your approach yeah, to them, not the other way around. <laughs> and meaning that you might have to change how you deliver something, yeah. change your programming. That doesn't mean you throw your whole system out the window, but it means that you might need to bend it and mold it in a way that fits that person who is coming to see you. Mm -hmm. You you have to have a hierarchy. And your hierarchy needs to make sense, but... You know, bo both from a theoretical and a practical standpoint, you have to look at what is the most important thing. So I'll, gi uh, I'll give an example. Sometimes people will ask about socialization 
uh, in, in my program, so in their program, say, oh, what about group programs for socialization? It's not that we don't want socialization. It's the question of what are we prioritizing? In my sessions, I'm prioritizing getting stronger, moving better, and being able to, to sequence activities, you know, so that they generalize beyond the gym to activities of daily living, postural control, all of these important things that we know fitness can do when fitness is done right. So creating your hierarchy, and the hierarchy then is going to change based on who you have in front of you. If I have an athlete who um, is having a, a meltdown or is, you know, is crying and screaming and is really distressed during the session, my hierarchy <laughs> is not their one rep max squat right now. My hierarchy is how do we escalate the, you know, so that they are less anxious, less upset, and can then start just something basic as, okay, let's stand in a, you know, in a red spot marker for seconds. All right, take a big breath. Now we can move on. So in a way, it's, it's setting up how we're going to look at this situation by what is the most important. Yeah, great point. To get like you have, you have to have a hierarchy of things that are priorities for you and understand where do I need to start with this individual. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk about uh, your certification, the autism yeah. fitness certification, how did you even begin to think, how am I going to put this together? Right. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you probably had some experience under your belt and you probably had a lot of people asking you for a system and saying, yeah, how do I do this? What how was that yeah. process like for you being able to sit down and say, I'm going to put this on paper? Because I know with CFSC, we had to go kind of go through to the bones to what we do every day yeah, um, and kind of hash it out as a group and say, this is how we want to deliver this. What what did you draw on um, for kind of your experience before that? And then kind of how mm. did you put it all together to get it moving? Yeah, you know, I, I just one morning I had this light bulb moment and i said you know to myself i thought what the fitness world needs <laughs> is another certification because we don't we don't have enough and it's just time for you know for another one and so i said yeah i'll do this if only just to contribute to the body of work. um it was the process of the, the real question because i didn't want to I really didn't want to do certification for those reasons too. And I, I don't want to take on the responsibility of teaching people something that is so complex and so nuanced and took me 10 to 12 years before I even understood how to explain what I was doing. Even with the, the mm -hmm. fantastic mentors and training that I got to then turn around and teach other people if you respect yeah. that at all, you're afraid of it. And that's good. It's a good fear. So I thought, what is, what do people absolutely have to know? Like looking at it from like an, an army ranger standpoint, okay, drop in, do exactly what is necessary to get, to get this done successfully. And, and then you're okay. Right. So I thought working backwards from that, from, if I'm going to put my name on it and I'm going to put my, my company logo on it, the outcome has to be that after this certification, someone has to be at the baseline level equipped to deliver 
a functional session to a variety of, of profiles because I can't dictate who somebody's going to be working with. You know, a physical therapist can be working with two or three athletes who have significant behavioral uh, challenges. And I can't yeah. say, oh, well, you have to wait for, you know, level two and level mm -hmm. three before. It has to be all encompassing and it has to be scalable. So I had to work back from maybe I'm going to get a BCBA taking the course or a board certified behavior analyst who has no experience mm -hmm. beyond they go to two you know, CrossFit classes a week. Maybe I'm dealing with a fitness professional who is highly motivated, but they have never had a course in, in, in you know, applied behavior analysis or, or human behavior or, um, or, or really dialed in coaching before. So how do, I, how do I create something that can be not only adoptable, but relevant for a bunch of different professional mm -hmm. or, or personal profiles? You know, when I have a parent or I have a sibling taking the course who wants to work with their son or daughter or, or someone in their household, what are, what are the things that need to, need to be covered so that someone says, I, we didn't learn that or, or I don't have, I, I don't have a, a principle or a practice that I can apply to the situation. So that was, that was the biggest challenge was it's not just one population that's going to be enrolling in the certification. It's a bunch. And I was, I was yep. initially surprised at how many parents wanted to take the course. But then I realized, Oh, they're, they're hard. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine. I mean, that's a daunting task when it becomes a you know wide population that you're trying to deliver to and you have like you said high standards if you if you're scared of it you respect it was a was a, yeah. a good line uh for those who do was listening uh you know it's like how do i deliver something that i think is great quality that can be applied but across the all the different people who might be applying it even yeah. down to the parents and so when they come to your course what kind of is uh, I don't want to give you know, you don't have to go through the whole thing, but what's kind of like your syllabus? What is your agenda when they come in uh, for it's a one day course or two day course? Yeah. It's a so it's um, virtual session. So <laughs> if you want me to go through all 15 hours right now, I'm happy to do so it's, it, it. It's about 15 contact hours of. Um, of pre-recorded classes along with the guidebook and, and, um, and access to a video library. And then I do a live virtual practical with people all around the world, which is, is really cool um, for a full day, a full eight hour day. So that's where we go over all of the programming practices. People have all day to ask questions. And it's really important to me, especially for people who don't necessarily have a, a training or an exercise science background to learn what a movement should look like, what it should feel like, how we progress it, more importantly, how we modify it and simplify it so that someone who is going into lordosis when they're squatting, we, we have a way to meet that and modify it so that we're not doing the same problematic thing over and over and over. So um, between the, you know, the self-paced learning and the, the virtual practical, and I do that throughout the year in different time zones too. So I just thought, uh, last week for some of my Singapore uh, Singaporean uh, partners. So I teach from 9 p.m. my time. Oh, my God. To, uh, to yeah, there you go. Morning. You just say, 
take a nap. I've done that before for CFST. You just get up, you teach it, and you're like, I'll sleep later. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Exactly. Everyone else needs good sleep practices. Um, (laughs) And so you're doing a lot of teaching. I know you're you're still working uh, with, you know, athletes on a daily basis. What is your kind of uh day like what is what is your kind of coaching yeah. day like uh working with athletes what type of setting are you in are you in a typical gym or where do you find yourself yeah practicing that's a great question so um mondays i get, I, I like to put all of my athletes together on schedule so mondays are kind of my heavy athlete schedule so i um, I, I get I have space in a small uh, commercial gym down in Charlotte. I have the Long Island accent. I moved down to Charlotte uh, two and a half years ago, uh, actually, so that I could get sleep <laughs> again. I haven't had for about twenty years, and so my mon- Mondays, all uh, just about uh, all um, all morning into the early afternoon, I'll, I'll work one to one with my athletes of all ages and ability levels. Um, uh, at Metro Fitness uh, um, in Charlotte, and then Tuesday afternoons I'll work with them, and then uh, typically on on Fridays I'll, I'll see athletes. So those three, uh, sometimes four days a week. The rest of the time I'm focused on uh, the certification, um, consulting, and then of course, even though uh, I run Autism Fitness, I'm also the uh, director of programming and innovation for Inclusive Fitness uh, here in in West Roxbury, uh, Massachusetts. So we have a complete um, and, and really world-leading facility for the autism and neuroadaptive population. Uh, so I spend a lot of time doing programming and, and coaching development and, and developing our IP and, and systems uh, as, as well. So that that's most, most of my professional week is dedicated to um, the certification, answering questions on, on some weekends, leading certification practical, um, developing more content for that, working with the IF staff, either virtually um, or coming up here in person, um, and then creating, you know, creating content. For stuff Very cool, man. Media. Well, so if there's people listening who, you know, want to know where to find you, um, and find out more about inclusive fitness or autism fitness certification. Uh, where could they go to 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 kind of learn more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, the my main website is autismfitness.com, and everything that you need to know it's is there. Unless there's something that's not on there that you need to email me about. That's fine. Uh, certification, um, in, including all the information about the program practical is there uh and then if you are currently in the boston area and uh you're interested in inclusive fitness it's inclusivefitness.com uh just extraordinary program i find thrilled to be a part of this place as well there's a virtual tour uh on the website and uh and, and then anything else anybody needs from a social media standpoint videos and tutorials on the concepts and practices because it's it's one thing to see an athlete doing an exercise but the explanation of 
why they're doing this exercise, how we're doing it, you know, the reasoning behind it and, and what the purpose is. Um, and then, of course, the authors put this on YouTube as well. Yeah, I, I think my, my two biggest... Awesome, channels. awesome. And I'll include all of those links in the show notes. So those of you who are listening, if you want to subscribe to them on Instagram or YouTube or visit any of those websites, I will have those links for you there. So, uh, Eric, thank you for taking the time on a Friday to sit and talk with me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was really interesting for me. And I hope that everyone out there listening um, can take something away from this. And please uh, reach out to Eric if you're interested because he's a great resource in this area for you and just for coaching information in general. So thank you. And uh, on the next one. Thanks, buddy.